The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today, it is my honor to welcome Dr. Rose Hayden-Smith. I knew Rose as a Food and Society Policy Fellow. However, she serves as statewide leader for the University of California's Agriculture and Natural Resources Division's Strategic Initiative in Sustainable Food Systems. She is a food systems educator, a U.S. historian, she is a writer, and she promotes the modern Victory Garden movement. In fact, she is a nationally recognized expert on the topic of Victory Gardens and the school gardening movement in America, which we see a resurgence of. And I'm very happy to have you with me, Rose, and to talk about some of these issues. We wanted to meet today because we are celebrating the 150th birthday of the Homestead Act. And I want to tie that into the food system movement that we see today. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Melinda. It's just an honor and a delight to be with you today. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. All right. Now, we want to talk about the Homestead Act. Gosh, I don't know enough about history to know what the Homestead Act is and why it's important to know about it today. The Homestead Act was basically one of three federal laws that were passed in the United States over a period of time. And it gave applicants ownership at no cost of farmland that they called a homestead. And it was typically about 160 acres, and it was undeveloped federal land west of the Mississippi River. And what was very exciting about it is that it was a real political statement. It had uh, the Homestead Act in earlier iterations. We had tried to pass it in Congress prior to the Civil War, but Southern senators blocked it because one of the political impulses behind trying to pass homestead legislation was the notion of free soil, free labor, and that these lands would, would be opened up for non-slaveholding populations. And so once the South seceded from the Union, a whole suite of legislation was and acts were able to be passed in 1862 that related to agriculture, not only the Homestead Act, but the U.S. Department of Agriculture was created, the Railroad Act was passed, and the Morrill Land Grant Act passed. All of those things were were signed into law or created within a couple of months in 1862. And it was a real expression of, of where the North saw itself going. And one of the very exciting things about the Homestead Act was that homesteads were open not only to white men, but to single women and freed slaves. So there was more diversity, and um, eventually there were more than one and a half million homesteads that were granted, and about 10% of all the land in the United States was was privatized in a period of 70 to 75 years, because you know there were there were different 
homestead acts and, and different sort of land runs as different tracts of federal land opened up. You know what's so fascinating about this? As you mentioned, slaves were able to apply for this, single women. This was like unheard of, right? But it, it, it was unheard of. And, and immigrants. Yeah, and farmers in the east who, because of uh, family succession, maybe there wasn't enough land to share among children in a family who wanted to farm, and so it really opened it up to a diverse range of people who may not have had access to land, and it really inspired immigration to the United States. And many of us are of an age to remember the 1992 movie Far and Away with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, and that dramatized with really beautiful people who probably looked a little better than real homesteaders, taking advantage of the 1893 land run, um, the, the Cherokee Strip land run mm-hmm. that opened up some lands in Oklahoma. Mm. Well, I thought it was interesting. In preparing for this interview, I went to several sites and tried to learn a little bit more about homesteading. And I thought it was interesting that each homesteader had to live on the land, they had to build a home, and I love this, they had to make improvements and farm for five years before they were eligible to, quote, prove up. And I'm assuming that means own the land in the end, right? That's right. And really, it's estimated that fewer than half of the people yeah. that started the process were able to complete the process uh-huh. and I... actually obtain title to the land because, you know, it was very difficult prospect to do, and a lot of people were not um, well capitalized. And there weren't the things that we have now, like the Beginning Farmer and Rancher Program, and I, right. I read today that the Brown Amendment passed. Yes, hallelujah. Um, and was part of the Senate bill. And we need to understand that, that these impulses to support Beginning and Farmer and Rancher movements that we're seeing now are really reflections of earlier impulses in American life, but we're trying to capitalize them better. This is a very important point, Rose, because I recently took a look at the report of the Young Farmer Coalition, and there the three big barriers to young people getting a piece of land and farming are access to land, access to capital, and access to health care. So the ways in which we made land available to settlers and immigrants and populations earlier than today, we need to be taking a look at that to see how can we get more young farmers on the land knowing that land access is one of their big barriers. Oh, I agree. And I I think that one of the the ways that we can do this, I mean, you know, it's going to have to be both in rural and urban areas. And in rural areas, that may involve more succession planning than connecting um, different groups of people. In urban areas, I think actually it, it needs to be part of a, a, a new urban homesteading movement that's sort of a, a smart regrowth and that considers things like transportation and being able to have policies, public policies that support and accommodate the intensive production of food in urban landscapes. And it's really interesting because in Michigan, did have an Urban Homestead Act that was passed in 1999. Hmm. And, but, but to me, what, what that Urban Homestead Act did is it, it allowed people um, access to, to abandoned homes and, and made that access available, but there wasn't sort of an attendant 
how do we support urban agriculture piece? And I'm very intrigued with all the work that's going on in places like Detroit and Flint, Michigan right now as a possibility of sort of um, providing models that, that would lead the nation and some public policy and supporting legislation to the idea of urban homesteading. I think that is a very important point to make. Now, I want to just mention something because uh, as I was researching this, I went to several websites, and I, I want to just let our listeners know that the National Park Service has one of the most comprehensive websites for American history, and there's a great section on for teachers, for children, for families to understand more about American history and culture, and agriculture and food is at the heart of everything that we do. But I learned that homesteading was discontinued Basically, in 1976, except in Alaska. Except in Alaska, where it continued for about another 10 years. Exactly. And, um, it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. And it was. it's interesting. I grew up in, I spent part of my childhood in a rural area where there had been homesteading. And it was still in the community's mind, that geographic place within the community was still called the homesteads, mm. um, even as late, well, even now. I, I recently had a, a classmate refer to it as the homesteads, and I, I think that's kind of interesting. And, and you're right, the National Park Service has done a great job of gathering resources for people who want to know about the Homestead Act. And, in fact, there is a, a National Homestead Monument in Nebraska right. that's operated by the National Park Service. And I also want to give a shout-out to the National Park Service because they have been very active at the Rosie the Riveter National Monument site in Richmond, California, in working in urban agriculture and in community gardening and school gardening in ways that really sort of take this urban homesteading piece forward. And the National Park Service is just a wonderful resource for Americans. I agree. You know, for, for citizens. I agree. All right. Now, so there is no National Homestead Act at the moment, but are there states that are trying to craft urban homestead acts? I mean, how, how would you like to see this direction go? Well, I think that there are states that are looking at urban agriculture, and definitely there are numerous, probably countless cities across the United States right now that are considering urban agriculture. And some people are framing it as, as urban homesteading. There is the urban homestead in um, that the Gervais family runs in Pasadena. And urban homesteading is, you know, if you Google it now, it's, it, there's a lot on it about as a lifestyle, um, the idea of promoting self-sufficiency. And it's really tying in with a lot of impulses around urban food production and home food production in suburban and urban settings like backyard chickens and community gardens and home food preservation and canning and this whole thing about self-sufficiency. And it seems to me that we've been even more focused on local and regional food systems since 9-11, almost as it's a way to help us because we have a real need to build or rebuild local community. 
Mm-hmm. And I think people are very intrigued with this idea of self-sufficiency and homesteading during a time when things are so uncertain economically mm-hmm. and I politically agree. and socially. I mean, we are living in a time of fundamental change and it's really unclear uh, you know a lot of the institutions around us are crumbling under budget pressures and it's it's really unclear what's going to happen and i think people are responding by wanting to have more control and being becoming more self-sufficient mm-hmm. and the climate crisis and the fuel costs and chaos in general makes us want to have stronger, more comforting sense of community. Absolutely. And and I think there's also, it's showing where the real resilience in mm-hmm. people and in communities lie. Mm-hmm. And it feels and good. It's and it's around food and creating things together. Mm-hmm. Now, I was so intrigued by many conversations we've had about historical food production And you are a Victory Garden historian. You know about how we used to produce so much of our food. And, of course, being that most of the times I look at the world through these public health glasses, I think, oh, my gosh, we're not eating enough fruits and vegetables. We don't produce as much as we should. Within our country, we have to import more food. And it's expensive. And I love the idea of home gardens as a way to promote better nutrition within the family. And then you've enlightened me about how schools used to have gardens. And during the Victory Garden period, what, 40% of our fruits and vegetables were grown in backyards? That's the figure that the government produced during 1943. That's what the government estimated, which was sort of the the peak year for Victory Gardens. But I, I think urban food production in America goes back way further, and and one of the the really you know interesting periods to me, and again it it goes back to Michigan, is D- Detroit, and you know the Panic of 1893, which is a, an economic downturn. It in many ways reminds me of of what we've just gone through with sort of corporate excess. Mm-hmm. But there weren't safety nets for people. And one of the responses that Hazen Pingree, who was the mayor of Detroit, uh, he and the leaders in Detroit basically started this potato patch experiment, you know, and urban urban gardening, urban farming. And it really took off. And vacant lot cultivation and there, a national vacant lot cultivation association was formed. And by the turn of the century, there was vacant lot cultivation and, and urban agriculture or community gardening going on in, in nearly every major metropolitan area. And, you know, the idea of using school gardens and community gardens um, sort of as a locus of progressive reform and a way to help feed the hungry and to connect urban kids with nature and improve education and beautify communities. And, and again, these are all concerns that we, we have now. And But we also have now a real need to to look at the age of American farmers and support the next generation of farmers. And just the numbers tell you that our demographics that many of these farmers are going to have to come from urban areas. Mm-hmm. 
And so what, what do we do to support that? And with the depopulation of some of these major American cities, what opportunities are there for us to learn from models like those in Detroit and Flint and in Milwaukee, the, the work that Will Allen does, to develop even more strength in, in that sort of urban agriculture mm-hmm. mode. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Rose Hayden-Smith. She serves as statewide leader for the University of California's Agriculture and Natural Resources Division's Strategic Initiative in Sustainable Food Systems. She's a food systems educator, a U.S. historian, a writer, and she is recognized nationally as an expert on the topic of victory gardens and the school gardening movement in America. Rose, I describe you as a food systems educator, and here we are having this lengthy discussion about history and agriculture and homesteading. What is a food system to you? A food system to me involves, you know, anything that would have to do with sort of, you know, to me, the production, the processing, the, the you know, the distribution, the consumption, and the management of waste of anything that has to do with food. And so when I, when I look at a food system, to me, and, you, and I think that you can have multiple food systems sort of operating. You can have, you know, simultaneously local food systems and regional food systems and, and more national and, and then global food systems are in operation simultaneously. And that's actually been the case for thousands of years. I mean, you know, you think about the spice trade and, you know, that was part of a global food trade. And I, that's what I regard as a food system. And when I think about the hundreds and thousands of jobs that are involved in, in various things, you know, from the, the scientists that, that work on hybridization and, and um, how to um, produce agricultural products within constraints of climate and things about water quality, I mean, I, I think about how many Americans really are involved in the food system every day, um, not only in actual paid work, but in the choices that they make as consumers. Food is really fundamental, and um, it's something that connects all of us. It is. It's at the heart of everything that we do. And I love your historical perspective because we take for granted all that has gone before us. But I do think that we have to be aware of what went before in order to know where we're going. Where do you see us going? Well, again, where where I see us going is I think that we're at um, a, a sort of tipping point where we could make some choices, and and I see some really marvelous, wonderful work that's going on, and. I, I think that we have some very serious challenges facing us, and those have to do with, with, with population, maybe flat agricultural productivity in certain sectors, um, inputs required uh, for certain um, scales of agriculture, water, um, climate change. And these are all challenges, and they're going to require a lot of collaboration among different groups of people. And I think actually where I see us going is people becoming more invested in learning about their, the, the food system at the local level. And I think that there are real opportunities for us to, again, take 
some of these historical models that have worked really well in the past and utilize them again. Like this idea of the Homesteading Act in um, America, it, you know, it, it was very, very novel at the time, although, you know, countries like Australia, the, 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 the sort of what I would regard as, as um, springing from the stock of the British rootstock those countries you know like australia america they 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 we have a lot of things in common and so these these land grant acts to us um they were novel in terms of being open to single women and freed slaves but but really the idea of land grants you know it goes back to you know ancient rome when soldiers were sometimes given land grants to go settle frontier land so that you would have um, you know, not only be able to sort of colonize new land, um, but that you would have soldiers um, on that sort of borderland or that frontier. And so we also, in America, there were many, many American farmers who got their start from land grants that were granted by the British to Americans for service in the um, the French Indian Wars, which is actually how some of my ancestors became farmers in America, was they, they got land for being soldiers. And so, you know, so we took this sort of um, historical thing that had been in existence, this policy, and we adapted it for the Homestead Act. But again, one of the opportunities that I see for us would be to, you know, we we, we don't, we need to do some succession planning in terms of, of lands in rural areas and, and, and how can we get farmers, young farmers connected to land, but it also needs to take place a companion piece on the urban side because there are um, significant opportunities to cultivate food in urban areas at a different scale. And there are concerns. I mean, you know, you you have to look at soil quality and, and mm-hmm. toxicity and things like that, that there might be lead in soil or things like that. But again, I see us going with maybe more people in America having the opportunity to be involved in food systems or agriculture. Um, You know, in 1860, and this legislation that we're talking about today was passed in 1862, in 1860, farmers made up more than 50% of America's labor force. Hmm. And I think that the number of people that will be required to be involved in food system and food production in the future is actually going to increase. The, the percentage. Uh, oh, I agree. We have to for our own. I look at this as homeland security. Absolutely, a- absolutely. And and you know, you and I have had previous discussions before that one of the driving forces behind the Liberty Garden, which later became the Victory Garden program in World War One, was food, home food production was viewed as being vital to national security. Now, by the time World War II came around, we had gone through a Great Depression and a, a reorganization, you know, through the New Deal of, of American agriculture. Things were reorganized. And by World War II, um, it wasn't so much home food production would be essential to the food supply, but then the federal government shifted it to a term that they used in the literature, um, the framing literature for the World War II Victory Garden Program, which they called nutritional defense, yes. which was the idea that Americans should be doing home, school, community, and workplace gardening as a way to improve American health. Yes, and I love looking at the posters from these different times in history, and one of them talked about having 
nutrients in your backyard or this idea that I love the poster of the the mother and the daughter canning food and the mother reassures the daughter that yes we're going to have plenty to eat this winter because they're canning and then what happened to us historically Rose where we stopped doing so much food production and food preservation on our own and we started giving that up to modern-day food processors. How did that transformation happen? Well, I I think what what happened is that you had a depression and then you had a war, but as a result of, you know, World War II, the the depression, but World War II was a real driver in sort of um, also helping to industrialize, um, you know, the American food system. And shortly after World War II, you know, you have the National you know, the Highway Act. And so you have these interstate highways being developed that made it much easier to move food around. I also think, too, um, one of the things that, that's overlooked a lot but that is really important to understand is that the sheer number of men that you had served in the military during World War II helped create um, a sort of national cuisine that that was... Um, that might have taken things like, you know, regional specialties but sort of made them more national. You had advances in food processing um, occur during war. They always occur during war because mm-hmm. of the need to to improve food technology. And so, you know, um, canning uh, things like canned milk really got their traction during wartime. And then, you know, the, the modern-day equivalent became MREs, you know, mm-hmm. meals ready to eat. Um, so you have a lot of that technology advancement. But I think a lot of it, too, had to do with affluence mm-hmm. because you have this generation coming out of World War II and, um, you know, America's booming. And you have the, the sort of distension of American society into the suburbs and a new sort of middle landscape being created and um, women being encouraged to to use convenient foods like you know frozen foods and and things like that and um, and I I think there was also um, a, a big focus on ornamentals and and one of the things when I when I look at first ladies um, and we have had the best first ladies in this nation just wonderful each of them has contributed something remarkable um, you know Jacqueline Kennedy Rose Garden um, Lady Bird Johnson all the mm. sort of gardening and highway beautification um, but very ornamental focused ornamentally focused and then you have First Lady Michelle Obama coming out and she's got a vegetable garden on the south lawn of the White House and to me right now when I look at that at that White House Garden on the south lawn of the White House, and I look at the USDA's People's Garden on the National Mall, which is the most sacred space in American public and civic life, I am very encouraged about where we might go if, um, if people continue to be as engaged with the food system as they are now. I never thought this stuff would be mainstream, and it's becoming pretty mainstream. It's wonderful. And that's encouraging. It is encouraging, and it is a wonderful note to leave our listeners. I want to make sure that everyone knows about the website that you recommended, victorygrower.com, if you want to learn more about Rose's wonderful work. 
And we've been speaking with Dr. Rose Hayden-Smith. She serves as statewide leader for the University of California's Agriculture and Natural Resources Division Strategic Initiative in Sustainable Food Systems. She is a U.S. historian, a writer. She is nationally recognized on the topic of victory garden expert. And you are certainly an expert in this whole school gardening movement as well, Rose. So you have been a terrific guest. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgar in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Rose, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today, and I want to thank our listeners for joining us.